This is a broadcast of Holland United Church of Christ. At Holland UCC, we seek to open the mind and engage the heart. We are a community of justice, peace, and affirmation in Holland, Michigan, where everyone is welcome to the table. The Holy Gospel this morning is from Luke 16, Luke 16, 1 to 3. Then Jesus said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, What will I do now that my master is taking my position away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm not sure what's happening here today. By the antenna. By the antenna. Seems tight. Doing my best here. All right, so the manager said to himself, what am I going to do now that my master has taken my position away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? He answered, a hundred jugs of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it fifty. Then he asked another, how much do you owe? He replied, a hundred containers of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and make it 80. And so his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. I'm just gonna switch mics so that we don't have to uh, feel interrupted. Verse 8. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. Whoever is faithful in a very little is faithful also in much, and whoever is dishonest in very little it's also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you've not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. For the word of God in Scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks, Thanks God. God. I told you we had a doozy coming. Right? <laughs> yeah. That is some kind of parable that we just read there, right? I think it's got to rank up there as one of the most confusing that Jesus tells, maybe top of the list. I mean, what is he talking about when he says, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth? This feels like I'm reading the gospel according to Wall Street, or maybe the gospel according to the mob, or something. But I promise you, this was in the gospel of Luke. But you'd think the translators got something wrong, right, from the original languages here. 
Is Jesus commending dishonesty here? Is he commending us to rip people off if we have the chance? This is confusing to say the least. And to be honest, I, when I saw this was our text this week, I almost skipped it. I thought, this is too messy, too confusing. But I believe in us. I think we can do it. Right? I think we can handle hard texts together. So we'll do our best. But then, of course, to top it off, Jesus says, after telling us to use dishonest wealth as a mean to gain friends, he also says that we can't serve God and money. It's almost like we're listening to an old LP of Jesus' sayings, right? And the record is skipping a little bit. And we're getting things out of context that, while it's entertaining, right, doesn't seem that helpful. Well, it may actually be something a little bit like that. Most scholars agree that the parable ends around verse 7 before all of the sayings get appended. The end. And they agree that because of the confusing nature of the parable, various sayings from the Jesus tradition about money get tacked on at the end. And that likely this flow of words as recorded in this chapter were never uttered in continuity by the Jesus of history. Now, I know that can feel a little disconcerting to those of us who were raised with a literalist and error-free understanding of the scriptures. Wow. Right? I'm just being honest here. But if you read any amount of serious biblical scholarship, including the stuff that I was introduced to at Calvin Seminary, right here in Grand Rapids, you'll quickly realize that, yes, the Gospels are, in many ways, a later collation and interpretation of the words of Jesus by the gospel writers. So if you need a minute to breathe or decide whether I'm a heretic, that, that's okay. <laughs> yeah. It's okay. But let's press on. Although another quick point uh, before we go too far, the sheer amount of varying interpretations of this parable show that, you know, the idea of, well, the Bible clearly says is not as simple and straightforward as we might like it to be, right? We just have to acknowledge that reality. And there can be varying interpretations of text that all have a certain amount of plausibility, but we need to take caution before assuming that our reading is the truest or the most accurate historically, et cetera, et cetera. So we always want to take a little bit of humility when we're approaching uh, the scriptures and not if we can help it, use them to beat someone over the head um, because we know that we're right. And I'm actually just trying to provide a bunch of qualifications and caveats in case you don't like where this ends up going. <laughs> so in a nutshell, we have a rich man who has a manager, right? Somebody who handles his business and this rich man finds out his manager isn't doing a good job. And so he fires him. Well, the manager is no dummy. Before leaving office, he takes a bunch of contracts and cuts in half or reduces what folks owe his boss. Seems like kind of a nasty thing to do, right? Kind of, well, if you're gonna fire me, then I'm gonna burn this place down before I leave. Kind of attitude, right? But then in a surprise twist, right at the end, the rich man commends the manager because he had acted shrewdly. What is going on here? Super confusing. Super confusing. Well, one approach to this is to see this parable in Luke 16 is, 
in a way, a continuation of what just happened in Luke 15, which is the parable of the prodigal son, part of Luke 15. We read the first part last week, but later, and right preceding this, is the parable of the prodigal son. And you recall that parable where there's the father who has a son who asks for his inheritance, takes the money, goes off, spends it, ends up hungry, eating with pigs, comes back, his father embraces him and welcomes him back, a parable that's often read as seeing the father as a picture of the forgiving nature and welcoming nature of God. And so some interpreters see the rich man in this parable as another representation of God's willingness to forgive us no matter how terribly we might act. So that's one view. Others, like Rudolf Boltman, felt that the original meaning of the parable had been lost and is unrecoverable. I mean, this sounds like a preacher's excuse on a Saturday night. <laughs> just going to be honest. Although I feel his pain. I do feel his pain. And most comments on the parable, or I should say many, tend to view the parable by a simple moral code, which tends to blame, place the blame on this manager, right, who squanders the property of the rich man. Because if you're not turning a profit for the company, then you're not doing a good job. But really, this reading seems to me to be through the lens of a modern capitalist framework where profit is everything. And I think, in many ways, that couldn't be further from the original context. And so let's try to place these characters in a more accurate setting. The parable begins, as we recall, there was a rich man. And it might be easier interpretively to see this figure as representing God. But what happens when we do that? We say, well, this part equals God, and then let's go on to the rest. Right? It can remove all of the contextual historical realities around that figure in the story and cause us to view that figure in a, in a very positive, if not adoring, light. And that may, be the, that may be the correct move in some parables, maybe even this one. You know, I'm not going to say I know for sure. But we can also see why that approach might be a 21st century Western American reading of a parable like this, right? Where, because we worship wealth. And so if there's a rich man, well, this person must represent God. But the text gives us some further clues about the wealth of this person. It notes the amount of the various contracts that the manager is dealing with. Right? It says 100 jugs of oil, 100 containers of wheat. That doesn't mean a lot to us, right? You probably haven't sold containers of oil lately. Um, at least I haven't. Well, as I understand it, the 100 jugs of oil equals about eight or 900 gallons. The yield of about 150 olive trees. So we can imagine a large expanse of land that would, you know, contain all of that wealth. And the wheat amount mentioned likely equals the yield of 100 acres of land, or about seven and a half years wages. And these are just two of the clients of this wealthy man. And so by virtue of these large numbers, we can guess that this rich man is likely a wealthy, absentee landowner. Why is he absentee? Well, he's a manager to run his estates, take care of his properties, ensure that things are happening as they should. 
And this rich man likely belongs to the ruling elite who control not only the land, but control the lives of the people. He was a Roman. Connected to the land. Uh, possibly. Possibly. And we also have to remember, who is Jesus' audience? So often. Not only the disciples, right, but likely peasants, day laborers, farmers, villagers, fishermen. Likely the kind of folks who would have had debts to such a rich man and wouldn't view him necessarily in a positive light. And so then we have the steward or manager. Now he's in a privileged position compared to the villagers and the farmers that he's dealing with on behalf of his master. Yet in a way he's in a vulnerable position, right? Because he's trying to keep the master happy and keep his job. But he's also trying to make sure that he has good relations with the people that are working with and who owe money to his boss. Now, as the story begins, something has already happened, hasn't it, off stage that we're not given a lot of insight to. A complaint has arisen about the job that this manager is doing. We don't know who that came from. We're not told. And so the master hears about this, summons his manager, and dismisses him, says, you can't be my manager any longer. And the manager says to him, well, what am I going to do now? Great, right? As anyone might do when they lose their job. And he says, I can't dig, and I don't want to bang. And some interpreters say that the manager is too weak and proud to do honest, hard work, and so he resorts to cheating. And maybe that's right. But William Herzog, who I'm going to lean on a bit this morning from his book, Parables as Subversive Speech, subtitled, Jesus as Pedagogue of the Oppressed, an excellent uh, resource when trying to read and understand the parables in their context. Herzog notes that to lose his job and join the workforce of day laborers is to drop out of the social class that he's in. The class of retainers or bureaucrats who have, you know, they're not at the top, certainly, but they help make sure things work for those at the top. He may drop out of that social class into the class of the expendables or the very lowest of society. He's never done that kind of manual labor, likely would fail at it, and then his option is begging. And so his dismissal from his job in many ways might be seen as a death sentence. It really doesn't have anything to do with his refusal to do honest work. Well, we know he doesn't turn to either of those. Right? He's got a fail-safe of sorts, and he turns to that. He gets fired, but he's banking on the fact that his clients don't know that he's been fired. Right? And they think he's still acting with the full authority of his boss, of the landowner. So he calls in the master's debtors, who are likely farmers or villagers, reduces their debt significantly, and we have to remember that a person in this job of this manager is likely making a little bit of profit on the side on these contracts. He's probably tacking on a little bit extra. And his boss probably knows he's doing that, but he needs good help. And so he's okay with that as long as the majority of the profit continues to come in. But these contracts are also expanded by the charging of interest. So that a certain amount is owed, but over time more is owed. Right, a classic scenario when you're in debt and you owe someone money. But how did the ancient Jewish faith and practice look at interest? 
charging interest. Not good, right? In fact, the Torah forbids usury or the charging of excessive interest. But a manager, if he was a good one, knew how to charge interest and fold it into the overall debt that was owed by not just having the list of the charges and then the interest and then the final charge, he would just collapse it all into one charge. So they only saw one bill. And that was very good for the rich man because if this was discovered that he was charging interest, he could just say, well, that was my manager, right? And keep his hands clean and keep his standing in the society. And so the manager really is important to have a good one. Well, so why does the rich man forgive the manager at the end when he's discovered what has happened, right? I'm not gonna make the money out that was coming to me. Okay, you can keep your job. You think he'd be extra mad. I already fired you for doing a bad job. Now you've done something worse. Is this a picture of God's willingness to forgive us? Maybe, right? It might be. But I'm not sure that's, as I've already said, the best reading. So I think here's what's happened. The managers dealt individually with each debtor so they cannot talk to one another until the deed is already done. And they're not going to find out that he's lost his job. And so from their perspective, he's negotiated with the boss a reduction in their contract. And they have to assume he's acting with full authority to do that. So then he regathers the renegotiated contracts, presents them to his boss. And now what's happened? He's painted his boss into a corner, hasn't he? Because these villagers and farmers are having a celebration and praising the good name of this landowner. They're like, this guy is awesome. He reduced our debts. We love this guy. So now the rich man's put in kind of a catch-22. He can continue with his plan to fire the manager and void the contract, the renegotiated contracts, but then he risks the wrath of these people who he's just earned all of their goodwill and all of this PR. So you can almost see him looking at the manager and saying, I see what you did there. I'll keep you around. You're a smart one. I'll keep you around. Right? Kind of interesting uh, what's, what's going on there. A, cl a clever maneuver, right? Indeed. And of course, he needs to keep the relationship with folks like this going if he wants to make a profit in the long term. And so maybe a short-term loss will pan out to a longer-term gains. But we've got to remember as we read these stories that Jesus tells, right, that they're happening in the context of agrarian societies and aristocratic empires that were common to that time. And so we have to ask, what if the parables of Jesus were not simply earthly stories with a heavenly meaning, right, which is sort of the, the view we're often um, given as we approach these stories? What if they're not simply theological or even moral stories, but political and economic ones? What if they weren't all stories about how God works in the world, but examples of how exploitation worked in first century Palestine? And so our parable today ends with villagers rejoicing and their debts reduced. A glimpse of another order, says Herzog, where the forgiveness of debts was more than simply a petition in a prayer. And all this thanks to the quote-unquote dishonest manager? We could end there and say he's the hero of the story, right? And Jesus, in the sayings afterwards, seems to commend it as such, right? 
use dishonest wealth. But let's not forget what started him on this. And we could stop there. I know we've done a lot. You guys are great, and you're hanging in there. We're almost, we're almost getting there. But let's not forget what started the manager on this path. Right? Something had happened in the background, off stage. Complaints had been lodged that he wasn't doing a good job. Who launched those complaints? The villagers. Yeah. Yeah. Now, we're not given that explicitly, right? So this is an interpretive uh, guess. But what if the charges brought against the manager came from the villagers? We might think, well, that's not great. That's duplicitous of them, unless they were correct and he was doing a bad job. But it seems like kind of a, a dirty thing to do. But Herzog notes that these villagers and farmers would have almost no weapons to wield against the powers that the wealthy held over them, and that this may well be an everyday form of peasant resistance. And these tactics of resistance, right, we can imagine how that might work. By bringing charges against the manager, it shows, hey, we're not just going to put up with you screwing us over, right? We can fight back a little bit. And he might have to heed that warning uh, if he keeps his job. He knows he's dealing with people who are maybe going to push back a little, but if he loses his job, the new, the replacement's going to have to realize what lost this guy's job, right? Not paying attention uh, to these villagers. And so we may not love this reading. We, we might want to judge the villagers, right, for employing this tactic. But here's what Herzog notes. There is no monolithic moral system to which everyone consents and by which everyone is judged. The entire system of which they are a part is exploitive and predatory. The manager represents the interest of a greedy and oppressive elite. The peasants are struggling to hold on to every bit of subsistence they can, doing whatever they can. Back in November of 2011, 2,000 or so people marched in lower Manhattan to protest America's skewed distribution of wealth and opportunity. It was a messy, motley, and spirited demonstration which gained national attention when a squadron of police came in and tear-gassed folks and took a lot of the pamphlets and flyers and things that protesters had assembled and threw them into sanitation trucks. This is the beginning of Occupy Wall Street. I can't believe it was 11 years ago. And this sparked over a thousand other like-minded protests across the country. And this wasn't just some fringe left crowd, as it often was portrayed as. It included everyday people, nurses, librarians, waiters, people who lost their jobs, in their homes, and who were sick of busting their tails every month just to get barely by, while the rich in this country grew wealthier and wealthier. Now, some say Occupy Wall Street was a failure because it didn't bring about real change or specific legislation to reduce the wealth gap in America. It wasn't cohesive enough, didn't have enough leadership. There were a lot of criti criticisms, and certainly some valid. But others say that it did have a lasting impact. As phrases such as the 1% or the top 1% highlighting the amount of wealth the richest in this country owe 
relatively equal or at least comparable to the rest of the 99% of the country, which is really astonishing to think about. 1% of people owning an equivalent to the other 99%, that is a staggering reality and not that far off in this country. And so phrases like that entered our regular political discourse. And talking about this wealth gap became more and more a part of common conversation in this country about how do we address some of the failures and some of the challenges we're facing as a nation. And out of this effort as well came activists pushing for student debt relief, which has continued to gain momentum, including recent actions to forgive a certain amount of debt for federal student loans. And sometimes, honestly, it's hard to gauge the effectiveness of work like this. Right? It's messy, it's dirty, showing up to protests and rallies, and so on and so forth. And we're not even always sure that's the right thing to do or how effective it is. But the reality is that our world, just like the world of Jesus and the disciples, continues to feature a great imbalance between the haves and the have-nots. And Jesus commends us again and again, here and elsewhere, to care for the poor, to work for the poor, and to work for a more just world. And that's what the villagers in our text seem to have done as well. Right? They didn't have many options, but they decided to do something to disrupt the status quo. And the conclusion by William Herzog is this. This may or may not have been a parable about the reign of God, but it suggests how the weapons of the weak can produce results in a world dominated by the strong. And so even though this rich man supposedly had all the power, there are actions taken from below, actions from below that result in a time where debts are lowered and rejoicing is heard in the land. And that is a beautiful thing. Amen. Amen. Maybe so. Invited to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. streaming on Facebook. You can also watch these messages on the Holland UCC YouTube channel. And for more information, how to get involved, or to support our work, like us on Facebook or visit hollanducc.org.